Welcome to episode 28 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, you can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. In exploring the impact of suicide in the military affiliated population, we think it's important to get a wide range of voices, including those service members and veterans with lived experience and those who are advocates. Our guest today is certainly both of those. Shauna, what can you tell us about Tom? Tom Cruise is a career military soldier in the Army. After coming through a period of acute suicide risk with the support of his wife, Heather, he plays an important role in the suicide prevention community. As Tom puts it, I got involved because I attempted and was saved by one person's actions, his wife, Heather, in this case. And I want to be the one for others that feel there is no way out or no one who cares about them, which may or may not be true. No one should have to suffer alone through their darkest times. With Heather by his side, the couple shares a story of Tom's darkest day and how they overcame this challenge together. And with the help of social media like Facebook and Twitter, Tom has been able to directly support or line up support for countless service members and veterans who are struggling with suicidal thoughts. Yes, Tom is an advocate. He's somebody that exemplifies a measure of post-traumatic growth in the fact that surviving an attempt can lead to a better life and, and then to pass it on. I do want to let listeners know that Tom's audio is a bit choppy. He's currently stationed in Europe, so it seems as though we had some connection difficulties. The information he presents is great, however, so we ask that you bear with the audio in order to listen to his insights. So we'll get into the conversation and we'll come back afterwards to pull out some key points. One of your focuses as an active service member right now. Obviously, you're doing a lot of work in this space, but one of the primary things you focus on is your own personal lived experience with your suicide attempt and the aftermath and everything else. That's really important for you to add to the conversation around suicide prevention in the military community. Yes. When we go and and share our stories, we share our story in a very unique way, and we do it unlike any other presentation you'll see or story giving, right? There's a lot of people out there that share their stories that do a great job, Kevin Briggs and Kevin Hines, but we're the only ones that do it in a family setting where I share my military career, how I felt, how the incident happened, and then my wife gets up and and speaks on the situation, uh, how it affected her and how she got us out of it. And then we roll it up with our son, Holden, who was born two years to the data incident and how educated he now is uh, within mental health and being able to help both um, his mother and and me get through the mental health portions. So yeah, it's an overarching thing where we try to share our story, not only for me to help others, but really it's to help me also by hearing other people's stories and realizing that I'm also still not alone in this, in this battle. When we talk about these stories, and you mentioned Kevin Hines and, and his story with the Golden Gate Bridge, but really what these stories are, are, are maybe breakdowns of the cycle where prevention efforts didn't necessarily work leading up to it. 
intervention did work for your case, and then the postvention of what do we do now that this is our reality, right? What do we do with the reality of a suicide attempt is just done and now we need to pick that up? Looking at the prevention and maybe looking back, what do you think are some of the things that maybe didn't work or some challenges that happened for you that got you in the place where a suicidal crisis was the answer? So really, uh, as far as the portions of like, I did seek assistance before, years before my attempt. The thing was, I went and saw a mental health professional and I did not get, I guess, the answers or the hug that I was looking for. And I swore off seeing anyone after that. So then fast forward a couple years and me not wanting to ever go get help or nothing. And it led to that, you know, let it all boil to that one point. So what I try to educate people now on in, in that aspect is that it's not about me. I shouldn't have gave up. I should have found um, another therapist that was going to help me out through that. Right. For me, how I look at it now and how I try to educate others is, is it's almost like a marriage, right? It's, it's or dating. Most of us just don't date one person and then marry that person and then go the rest of our life. We usually date people, see what we like, what we don't like, what we get along with, what we don't get along with. Well, therapist is no different, right? And I shouldn't have just quit and stopped seeing somebody just because I didn't get along with that one. I should have continued to find one that, that matched up with me, not gave me the answers that I wanted to hear, but that would help me and I could help back. And I, I felt like I was getting what I needed from that. I think that's very crucial. And what a, a lot of people are missing nowadays is they're just hoping that someone's going to give them the answers to everything instead of trying to work through it. And then either giving up or just not trying to go back and find somebody else. No, I think that's critical. And yes, doing preventive maintenance on our vehicle keeps us from having to take it to a mechanic for a blown engine, right? Taking care of those things early. I think you're talking about really some of the stigma against help seeking your mental health. What I've found is people will generalize bad experiences with mental health, meaning if I have a bad experience with this therapist, then all therapists are bad or no therapy works. But if they have good experience with mental health, they localize it in that this one therapist or this one mental health professional is good, but that doesn't mean all of them are. And I think that's something having obviously seen that on active duty and maybe even some in the veteran space. Is that sort of what you're talking about is sort of that decision of this didn't work for me. So therapy doesn't work. Right. Right. On the same side of being able to pick a therapist that that's good. Corn, there's, there's tons of therapies out there, right? There's tons of different ways of, of, of treating PTSD and all the, all the other stuff our veterans are, are dealing with, right? There's EMDR, there's CBT, there's equinine, there's, there's dogs, there's all kinds of things, right? But not all those are straight fits for one person, right? So when we try to do one of these and we're like, yeah, that didn't work and there's no therapy out there that help help me. There are other ways of, of seeking assistance and not, not everything. For like me, for me, I do photography and I've done peer mentoring and I've done other things that I feel have help me get through my depressions and my anxiety and my PTSD a lot better than some other people would say, well, EMDR works for them or CBT work for them. It's a not one shoe fits all. And we got to continue with the help of somebody or on our own to find that balance of what is going to work for us and who are we before all this and what do we think is going to help us get back to that state where we can manage this now, the, the mental health that we have now and how do we move forward with it. And that's something that you and, and your wife and your family as a whole did, right? The intervention occurred and then you obviously moved on 
and then are taking care of it afterwards. But the concept of post-traumatic growth, that kind of thing that doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You took your experience and the situation and you made something out of it. You did something with it. Yeah. And it's, it's just weird how it all played out. Not many people knew. I fought to get out of Walter Reed. Walter Reed tried to retire me and say, after 16 years, you're done. You're good to go. We'll retire you 100%. I fought to stay uh, in. I thought I still could be relevant to the Army. And I had to go through more testings and more scrutiny and more all this stuff. And besides that, my job requires me to have a top secret clearance. So within that holds its own uh, own issues, right? So even though I was able to 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 stay in the military and stay in the army, I then had to deal with a whole nother area, which was trying to keep my clearance because my job required that. If I don't have that, then I don't have a job. But I was very fortunate in, in leadership that I had that they didn't look at me for what happened, but how I tried to move forward. And I just took that and ran with it once they allowed me to. And it's turned into what we do now is you know, going around and just helping soldiers and veterans, whether it be in person or online, and just trying to instill it back on them, right? Show them that they, they have a voice, that they can go get help, that there is help out there. They can be successful. They can have a, a military career still. They can keep their clearances. They can have a family. They can have a future. Yesterday was my 25th year. So I'm 25 years in the Army now. It's been, you know, 10 years since the incident. And I've had some, you know, challenging times. I've had some, you know, still military challenges, but it's made me stronger and I enjoy going and helping others. And you've mentioned the peer-to-peer aspect a couple of times. And for those of us who served or even those who have been affiliated with the military, whether it's military children or spouses, that ability to see that someone else has been able to do what you want to do, that's critical. The first lieutenant can look at the chief of staff of the army and know that there's a path. Maybe it's like winning the lottery path, but every private has the possibility of being a sergeant major. Is that one thing that we might be missing in suicide prevention is those obvious role models like yourself, this idea of I was able to get through it, I was able to stay in and arguably even succeed to greater heights than I might have had I not gotten help. Yeah, I agree. I mean, peer mentoring for me has been key uh, amongst some other stuff, the MRT, Master Resilience Training and some other living works and doing there and doing assist training. Peer mentoring to me is very crucial, um, almost on the same part as lived experience. Peer mentoring is those people that have been there, done that with you, are in the same boat. I get asked to talk to a wide variety of, of other uh, peoples or other uh, genres or other areas. And, and I don't want to not do it, but I also know my limitations, right? I am I'm a military member. I have been in the military 25 years, you know, almost my whole, whole life. And that's what I know. But put me in front of high schoolers and talking about bullying or talk, put me in front of LGBT community or put me in an all an all female audience. I can give the guidance as far as suicide overall, but to talk to individual issues that they may have, I didn't experience that type of stuff. So that's why peer mentoring is it's crucial that we get peer mentoring across the board because that's how you're going to be able to help bring out the lived experience stories because if the same people have been through the same stuff as you and you can, you can click like that. That's huge where you can trust in that. A lot of people can trust in me, but I will never be able to fully understand some people, what they've gone through and, and the struggles that they have. And I, I will feel for them and I will talk to them through stuff. But being on that same level as I can easily talk to a private 
to a sergeant major to a colonel, all about military experiences, deployments, uh, you know, PCSing, moving around the world. But I can't talk the other talk. So peer mentoring gets in there with that's where we, we empower them to be able to talk amongst each other and just grow them, grow within each of their groups. And I think that'll flourish a lot better than some of the other techniques where you try to just say one shoe fits every every person or every group. That, that that's not working as we can see. It's interesting, and you make that distinction between lived experience and maybe more specifically peer mentoring. They're not mutually exclusive, nor do they both have to be the same. You don't have to have lived experience in one instance to be an effective peer mentor. I'm thinking specifically in my experience, like veteran courts, our veteran mentors haven't been in the justice system, but they're still very effective because it's it's peer-to-peer on different levels. But then to be an effective peer mentor, you can't also just have had lived experience, right? Because I'm thinking of the peer pressure, right? Two privates telling each other what to do may not be the best thing that's going on. Peer mentors need some specific advanced training or schooling or or something to move beyond just somebody who experienced it to somebody who can help someone else. Yeah, and there's tons of different training. I mean, I went through the peer mentoring program uh, through the Tampa VA right before I left for Europe. And the peer mentoring program through the VA, at least at the time, is you had to have those experiences already. Uh, one, because that's how you was able to identify with whether you had an alcohol issue, a drug issue, if you had disabilities. All those were part of the curriculum to be a peer mentor because that helped you understand the training, but then provide that recovery, not really your incident, but the recovery of how you recovered through, those, through each of those issues to be able to help others. And for me, that's been rewarding because it's helped me since I never really got truly diagnosed with what happened that night, being able to talk to others with the same experience or or the same kind of issues or depression or anxiety really helps me try to figure out myself more than I think anything else has, has helped me. But then, of course, as leaders in the Army, we train our soldiers, seniors train their subordinates. A non-commissioned officer is basically a teacher, and that's, that's what we do. But at the same time, helping others helps ourselves. Do you see that? I mean, you've talked about how peer mentoring is, is one of these recovery tools for you. Sort of my shield covering my brother and my sister is protective for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the military is getting a lot better uh, on that front. At least from what I've seen over here in Europe, we're, we're continuing to watch out for each other more. There's a lot more programs. My favorite, AFN, uh, all my military people know, you know, I watch AFN a lot over here and they've got tons of different commercials for, you know, resilience and getting help. And it is watching each other out and, and, and trying, being a, just a good leader too. Um, it's part of the leadership now is being able to identify when your soldiers are having issues, which I think wasn't a big deal back when I first joined or even a lot longer into my career. But now you see that a lot more of asking, how are you doing? Or can I get you help? Or, you know, what can I help you with? And not being held against them anymore, really. It's interesting. And you say that it has been 10 years. And I'm thinking of when I started to see things change. And it was maybe 2012, 2013. Here at Fort Carson, we started seeing embedded behavioral health. I think it was like 2008, 2009, where there was a mental health professional embedded in your unit, like you knew who that was, and they deployed with you and they were there with you. And so I I agree that I have seen a shift in 
military culture, even in these 10 years, it seems like it's taken a long time, but it has changed. Uh, and you're in an interesting position where you do a lot of work outside of the military. It's not common. Once you're in the machine, you're sort of in the machine and not really paying attention to outside of it. Do you see that same kind of shift when it comes to veterans and sort of outside the military? Um, I think I'm not one for social media. I really dislike social media, but that is the way we have gone. And I think with the advancements of social media, I think that has become a great thing for veterans because as of like 10 years ago, you know, I was one of the first people to help start up like veteran support groups on Facebook. And now it's just, it's blown up where there's all kinds of support groups through Facebook for veterans to the point where they'll help find each other if one goes dark and you can't get a hold of them or they got buddy checks or they got buddy link ups. So in my mind, the veterans have a lot uh, through the use of technology to be able to not be dark in the dark corner because they have the, the capability to reach out. And there's a lot of organizations that are anonymous. You just share your story. One of my favorite things you used to do was just, I would talk to a veteran and then I would just post his story without his name under my profile and just ask people to comment. And that person that, that, that reached out to me could just see the outpouring of, of love from across the country, from across the world of veterans that were like, I've been going through that same thing, or here's my phone number if you wanna call, or hey, we could go grab a, you know, a beer or a pizza or a ball game or, or something like that. So I think that both for in the military and outside the military, I think social media has become a, a good tool to reach further and farther and, and, and be able to uh, educate a little bit better. Of course, this is the thing is we, we always say you're not alone. I mean, heck, I, I end the show with it every week saying you're not ever alone. But that's a way to show service members and veterans like, no, you literally are not alone in this. You are not the only one that's going through this. And by giving them that example of I can de-identify and I can show you that there are people out there who do care. One of the things that in your experience and, and definitely in my experience is that sense of hopelessness is what is, is critical in that moment of crisis. And what you're doing is giving someone hope that there are people out there that care. Right. Just because we know when military people get out, they, they isolate themselves in certain locations that they may not have access to the normal people. Some people go live in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee or Nevada or Montana, and they go get their farms or they get some land and they, and they seclude themselves, right? Or even they seclude themselves in the middle of the city. And don't realize there's a lot of great people like Objective Zero and some other organizations out there that you can actually just go on your phone and look to find a veteran that's literally two streets down or there's like 50 veterans in your city of Tallahassee or something like that, you know, and, and realizing, wow, there is, I do have a support system here that I was not aware of. So it, it's, it's been pretty, pretty cool to see some of these uh, groups stand up lately. One of the things, and obviously mine and Shauna's focus, and, and we've been talking about suicide for a very long time, again, a decade ago is when you experience your crisis, and moving beyond the awareness and, and doing something in this action-oriented thing, and having met you at, at AS conferences and seen your work and stuff like that, this is something that you're focused on is like, theories are great, but we need to figure out how to get something into the hands of the folks that need it on the operational level rather than just talking about it and writing articles about it. I agree. And, and um, it kind of, for me, uh, you know, I see it 
from multi-levels, right? Um, I would love to see the big organizations like you mentioned, like AAS and SAMHSA and all these guys that are supposed to be the policy and, and procedure makers. Just like we in the military, you got your always your higher chain that writes all your orders and tells you what to do. And it gets all the way down to the little guy that's got to do it, do it on the ground, right? And there's always a disconnect in between there of what's really got to get done and who wants done what. I think that same thing here. We've got a lot of great organizations at the top level that can do the policy and the funding and the Capitol Hill talks and that. But it also has got to come from the communities, right? The lower communities got to stick together because even though we, we implement one app or one therapy or one thing to one area, like I said before, not one shoe fits all. The same thing that I help in Tampa, Florida, it may not work in St. Louis, Missouri, or may not work in Maine, right? Because the veteran population is different due to the environment that they're in. So we have to start empowering our communities and having the VAs and the grassroots organizations in those communities work with the, the local veteran organizations that are trying to best to do what they do and they're doing it on their own dime and they're doing it just through social media. Or just, I think we really need to focus on, on empowering them the best we can to help see what do they need at those areas. Now, what are we trying at the top to, to tell them they're going to do? Because that's just, again, where we're resisting. So it, it's still going to take a long time. It's still going to take a while before we, they, they figure this out or, or whatever. But I think it, it's, it's got to be a, a, a kumbaya, everyone holding hands together from the top to the bottom. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I see that in the same way. It, just like each military base has its own culture. We were talking about my experience when I was stationed overseas in Germany for six years total and where you're at right now in Belgium compared to how our differences are when we're stateside, right? So each base, each region has a different culture, even overseas, whether you're in Korea versus Germany or whether Germany versus England has different cultures. And there's still some basic things. You still salute the same people. You still have some basic things that are the same, but then there's some other things that are different. And, and I, I think that's something that is starting to emerge again. And, and we're at this point in this project that we're doing is having these emerging themes. And that's one of them saying that we need to address things at the community level with the support of higher headquarters, not at the direction of higher headquarters. Tom, I, I really appreciate, obviously, I, I appreciate you and your wife and all the work that you have done in this, but I also appreciate your willingness to continue this battle, to pick it up, and, and thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I great, greatly appreciate it. You and Sean are awesome. Great book and great podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I'm glad that we were able to have Tom on the show. We've had family members whose lives were impacted by suicide, like Howard and Gene Somers and General Mark Graham, but this is the first guest that we've had on who has lived experience as an attempt survivor. Yes, exactly. And I really want to reemphasize the role that Tom's wife, Heather, played during his darkest day. Lately, there has been a great focus on resilience in military training across service branches. We often think of resilience in terms of an individual's capacity to tolerate and recover from stress. What I know for sure is that resilience is not about being an army of one. Resilience is about our ability to develop and maintain interdependence with those we love and trust. Tom and Heather once shared with me in great detail about the story of his suicidal crisis. On the day that Tom wanted to end his life, his wife, Heather, got down in that trench with him and showed him 
that her love was stronger than her fear. She would not be moved from his side, even to protect herself, even when encouraged to do so by outside forces. She sat and waited for as long as it took for Tom to excavate and share his hidden pain with her. The value of sharing their story together is that we get to see a fuller picture of the kind of courage that may be required of us to successfully intervene when someone is in crisis. Sometimes responding to those in crisis requires us to be warriors of a different kind in the way that Tom and Heather's story demonstrates. Yes, this puts me in mind of the fact that we always say if we can only save one or, or one death by suicide is too many, but the other side of that is just one person can impact that. All it takes is one person saying the right thing at the time that's needed to be able to impact literally someone's life and put them on a different trajectory, whether that's someone like Tom and, and his wife, Heather, and, and Heather making that impact or or just me saying the right thing at the right time with my father or countless other examples, just the impact that one person can have on one other person can, in my mind, be part of the solution of starting to reduce some of these numbers. Absolutely. I totally agree with you, Dwayne. And I think I would add that it's often not what somebody says, finding the right thing to say, as much as simply saying, I will not move from your side and I will listen to anything you need to share. And so in this case, as in others that I'm thinking of, it really has just been the saying that you're, you're speaking to is with the body language and with your presence and just being steady and solid and radically safe to hear whatever the person needs to share. The second point I wanted to emphasize is at a conference hosted by the American Association of Suicidology, Tom spoke on a panel about creative ways to use social media. One of the ideas that he shared there that he touched on during the interview today with you as well is worth emphasizing. Because Tom has a large social media presence, if someone is in distress, he's able to post about the general nature of an issue and ask people in his online community if they've ever felt similarly. That way, without violating the privacy of the person who's struggling, it is possible to generate an avalanche of support in person to someone's struggle. And that person is also able to preview among the responders the kind of person that feels like a good fit for them as far as additional peer support. Many of us are familiar with the concept of crowdsourcing, which is a way to get information from a group of people to help us. Crowdsourcing is usually done for our own benefit to help us solve a problem. And this is different. This is an example of what I've been calling in my work, crowd resourcing. Crowd resourcing is tapping the support of a community of people to help someone else with a problem that they're facing. Tom's method is a clever form of crowd resourcing that uses social media tools to generate a wave of compassion and specific options for individual peer support. Yeah, I really appreciated how he shared that. It reminded me of a program, I, I think it's in several different locations around the country, and this is really built out of the VA's peer support network. But a local colleague ran a group called Veteran X, and this group was a group of veterans who were addressing the problems of Veteran X, this hypothetical veteran. However, Veteran X was having the problem that 
the members of the group had. And it's sort of a way to step away from the problem. And I'm helping a buddy, but in helping a buddy, I'm helping myself. And so, again, it's a really interesting idea. It's definitely a way, I think, as I mentioned in the interview, a way to let people know you're not really alone in this. This is not something that you are going through by yourself. Yeah, exactly. This idea of giving people cover. Some people say, oh, well, but then you don't really know who we're, we're working with or who we're supporting. But if it ends up saving their life, do we really care? Do we just need to be creative in these ways and see the development of trust as very important to pay attention to and think about if the trust isn't yet there, how can we help anyway? And maybe we need to give people this kind of cover or do this in clever ways until the trust is there. And then they open up. Once trust is, is developed, it's a game changer for therapy. I just think we need to be clever about how we can support people before the trust is built. Yeah, I think that, again, Tom using his, his lived experience and his experience since then to be able to get this message out, I think it's a great example of something that some of us can do to take action to impact suicide in the military-affiliated population. We appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at bettermentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS28. There you can get links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.